Welcome to 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, a retrospective podcast. And this is, of course, a reviewing podcast where we go over the retrospective aspects of the podcast of the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. Deliberately said it that way because I lost train of thought, but uh, we'll be back to it. I, of course, <laughs> am your lovable host, Bob, and I'm joined today by Brennan. Uh, Brennan, um, where do you come from and what's your background in what we do? Well, I'm, um, my background is primarily in uh, Chronicles of Darkness. Uh, that's what I started on, cut my teeth on, uh, really uh, found a love for Vampire the Requiem. That was a very, uh, I thought it had a very primal take on the, the vampire aspect, and that's kind of what drew me to it. Uh, so I was uh, a narrator for that, a uh, storyteller for that, also involved in a Vampire the Masquerade LARP for uh, five years, uh, actually, at this point. Five years, wow. Um, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a long time to do a LARP. I know I've uh, I got to stay in that, too. Um, I'm curious, though, in the five years of you doing the Requiem LARP, was there ever a Dark Ages type of war mash thing that you guys went through? Uh, n- not, uh, <laughs> no, um, there were, there were several things in this book, actually, um, that, uh, that were pulled in and were kind of unintentionally, uh, used, I guess, but it was never the, uh, the straight up, uh, you know, uh, units clashing against each other, which is a good thing. I think that could be great. Mm-hmm. to be really hectic and hard to see an entire combat take place of rock, paper, scissors, or card pulling or dice on a, on an app that you roll through to, right. try to see how that is. Um, but I'm curious also in uh, spoils of war itself, how many books have you actually, I mean, other than listening to our podcast in there, um, I'm wondering, have you ever sat down, read a book cover to cover and just wanted to speak on it? just kind of talk to like a round table discussion or the faceless masses that are now listening um, and, and sort of give your opinion and your critique. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, these are all going to be Chronicles of Darkness books, but um, uh, Secrets of the Covenant, when I came out, I, I like uh, got into like long discussions with my LARP crew about that because that went all into uh, more detail on the different covenants of Requiem uh, than the Covenant books even did, kind of updated a lot of them. Uh, and then that was all really uh, story side. Um, there was also a big mechanics book that I, uh, I loved and tore apart, um, Hurt Locker for Chronicles of Darkness. That was the um, that was basically the locker where you stored all the hurt for the game, man. Uh, they <laughs> added so much stuff, not just straight up weapon stats either, but like uh, martial arts stats, different type of enemies, different type of protagonist. I uh, we I feel like we flipped the the table on our LARP game whenever that book came out because we just tore it apart. Uh, but it was it was both of those were good. Um, I feel as though I enjoyed the discussions that came out of those books more than I enjoyed the books, and I enjoyed them quite a bit. Well, for me, man, I don't know about anybody else, but that to me qualifies you to just be in a not to have to be qualified to have an opinion, but just to be comfortable mm-hmm. talking about well the spoils of war. Uh, for everyone listening, the book today is, of course, Spoils of War. It's a Dark Ages book, but it's not just vampire, right? It covers a uh, vampire mage. It has a, a changeling mention. You have the guru thrown in there. It tries to encompass Dark Ages as a whole, even definitely from the mortal perspective, with the flavoring on top of everything else. And uh, with that, we're going to 
dive right in and just kind of trudge through this. Um, for everybody just returning, I want to thank you for still uh, coming out to give us a chance, hear us out. And uh, what I mean by give us a chance, hear us out, um, I want everyone to know that, of course, Nate's not here co-hosting anymore. Um, he's moved on to greater things. Um, it's not to say he misses, he doesn't miss you all. Of course, he loves you all and the support you gave him. We want you to think about him going forward and what he tries to do further. Uh, UtilityMuffinLabs.com is still where you can reach him. And uh, just, just give him that encouragement. Um, everyone, no matter what you do, there will come a time in your life um, when you see an opportunity. An opportunity is so good that you just have to reach for it. And that's that's what he's doing. And it's all in the pursuit of his happiness and still love uh, for everyone all around for that. And I know we appreciate him, the team at 25 years. And uh, so we hope you continue listening. And uh, we're just going to get right into this. We're going to roll forward to a new segment real quick where we set you guys up to understand what we're kind of babbling on, right? We want you on the same page. To review a book is sure to critique it, but we're not we're not trying to critique it in terms of construction, who wrote it, we'll care, you know, not like that. We care about, like you, how does this book relate to us? Why would I pick it up and how would it add value to what I do? And so to that end, Brent, I'm going to ask you to keep an open mind. And this book states that in how to use it, it's to be used as a resource for storytellers and players alike. It says that for the players, you get an idea of warfare, feudal duty, and taking the cross, right? It's a focus right onto the offensive. However, for the storyteller side, it's a feudal setting, with chalk filled with story ideas, much context, not to mention land building, how to control and, and see a domesny. Uh, sorry, I just did it again. A domain, <laughs> a domain in different capacity. Um, and in addition to that, there is crunch, but the crunch is something you're gonna be curious about if you're a dark edge storyteller of any kind. Because it deals with mass combat. And that's something a lot of people, ooh, shy away from. Right? It's a crazy idea. But the fact is that combat happens and, and in big war. And a lot of people don't understand that. Right? And this book attempts to tell you this is how you use it. And this is, you know, this is where it goes. In addition to an extensive weapon selection, it, it's up to you whether you would use it or not. But they say that's what this book is for, and that's how you go at it. So with that in mind, Brentron, I'm gonna turn it over to you. There's a prelude in this book. Tell me about that. Yeah, the prelude is titled, uh, well, The Beast of War, right? And it's, uh, I think it's a pretty uh, accurate title. It's from the uh, the standpoint of a particular uh, guru, one that's uh, Hamid. He's... Um, Real quick, what's a guru? Guru is a werewolf. That's their term for werewolves. Uh, apparently, they don't like calling themselves werewolves. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just the, the, the term in the game for that... Uh, uh, supernatural uh, and he is uh, it starts out with him coming to a uh, well a devastated uh, like village uh, that his kin lived in uh, and it's not devastated by war uh, directly it's devastated by disease he comes in uh, there's one particular point where he comes into a particular like hovel and there are the um, the bloated decaying corpses of a of a couple and they're uh, heartbreakingly enough, uh, they're two children. It paints a very uh, vivid picture of um, just the uh, the suffering and damage that uh, disease did back then. At least that's the the impression at first. Um, <clears throat> not long after, well, while that's going on, a he receives a messenger. Uh, it seems as though it's a, a red talon that's going spreading the word of a uh, a moot 
that's gathering to the north uh, to discuss the new war that's been happening as uh, in this conversation it's uh it's and real, and real quick what a, what a mood is is that um for our vampire fans if you're not used to werewolf we know a guru is called werewolf. It's a terminology drop but the story also introduced that the werewolves are organized they're not just shape-shifting under a full moon and eating people they have a purpose and a point and they're out here in the middle of this war as he said up to this point um dealing with a very heavy thing and that is apparently disease as a different type. It's not something they could just knock down, and it seems to be affecting quite a few people. And what this moot is, it's a gathering of these guru, these werewolves, uh, to go and meet and discuss what can be done about it or next steps. Right. Uh, so that, that message is, uh, well, relayed. There's a, I'm not even going to say there's a scuffle uh, between the two uh, werewolves that meet between the messenger and the receiver of the message um however there is a uh well like i think all wolves do there is a uh, a hierarchy that's enforced there the uh main character of the story does uh assert dominance in this uh in this relationship he uh forces him down and the red talon bears his throat because he realizes this one is stronger than him uh <clears throat> from that point it kind of breaks off the um, the main character whose name I cannot remember for the life of me. Nobody remembers it, but I'm going to help you here. Let me, let me sum this up because it's, uh, one of those things is that you can lose people real quick, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and going over depth anyway, like this story, everyone, I welcome you to check it out. It's a good story in particular, if you're new to werewolf, it's a great story to give you an eye opener of how that looks. It's very, it's like a sizzle, like a sizzle video, right? It'll, warm up the meal, so to speak, for you to, for you to have at it. Uh, but what I will say is, what you're getting up to when you're talking about the Red Talon and the main character and that interaction, let's leave that as a secret. Okay. But the one thing it is bringing up, and I want to see if it follows that theme, did you, like me, like, I got the feeling that it was showcasing war isn't just about vampire, that it absolutely hammered home, that this affects everyone, and that the landscape is not just vampires ruling as dark lords, and all these other supernals run for the hills, right? They're there, too, handling it in their own perspective. And we're asked a lot of times about how do you do uh, cross-platform, cross-genre, how's that work? This is the first book where I saw it do it subtly, but but to detail, right? If you if you went and this war talks about there was a war that was won, but look at the losses, and there was a disease afterward infecting everyone, and they don't know how to handle it because they're killing machines, right? I know a lot of werewolves now are going, wait, we do more than kill. Hang on, you all turn into ten and a half foot tall, seven hundred pound, <laughs> right, right monsters just <laughs> slashing through armies like. Sell that somewhere else, right? We we know what you're about and the deep spirituality come with it and you do have a purpose and a good one. However, consider perspective. Everyone dominantly are vampire listeners here and they're trying to figure out where the prince come in, where the armies come at, and it doesn't relate to that. This is like the aftermath of a, of a, of a fight. It's that simple. And this disease is a thing. And it highlights that the aspects of war are not just about the biggest, baddest stomping around, slashing things up. There is an upkeep. There is a cost, and it affects those who weren't even in the battle most times. In a sense of an aftermath. What do you think, Brunchon? Uh, I, I thought it was, uh, well, uh, the intro story uh, showed that, you know, um, uh, very well. Uh, the... Um, 
the idea that whenever um, uh, a war is waged, the people that really pay the most are not the uh, you know the lords uh, shoveling out money for it. It's the people caught in the crossfire. Uh, I got the the impression this story more than anything was a was a tragedy about people who were uninvolved with uh, any fighting directly yet still paying the price for it that they were that their only crime as far as uh, what happened to them was just just existing right and that's a very uh, sorrowful uh, thing that I think that that really showed through I agree that sorrow is the aspect of war overlooked most times right mm-hmm and um, rolling ahead, it gets into basically chapter one. Now, again, their goal with chapter one, it sounds great, right? It's titled Duty and Steel. It says the chapter discusses reasons for going to war. Uh, some of the history, greatest battles of the last few decades, systems for leading troops, building and using siege engines, foraging for food when in combat. A lot of people don't even think about that. Mm-hmm. And combat at sea. I was intrigued by this chapter, right? Because the first thing they get into is feudal society. And what's interesting is a lot of the books before that we went over go deep. So deep that I feel that we got away from, well, honestly, quite frankly, how many people use this, these uh, settings for? Feudal society is something you have to get into, but how do we do it where we don't have to get a doctorate to truly showcase it, right? How do you do it to where we're not mired in research left and right and it's, and it's on down the road? I think the authors did this smart, right? Off the bat, they're concise. They tell you that in feudal society, it's, it's, it's by no means everything there, but it's central to much of it. And that the power structure in Europe is the principle of feudalism, i.e. it's a series of interlocking relationships that control the land as a whole. And we know Europe is not as big as other countries, but there is much culture and different nations lock therein. Um, and that's, that's a powder keg in a time when everybody's trying to take over land and we rule all and kings and all that. And it drives this home, but it doesn't do it for the entire chapter, right? You have half a page and it, go, and it, go, and it goes over what happens, right? Um, for this, without uh, boring anyone, uh, they do go over the, uh, the Angevin uh, situation and the battles that took place there um, briefly. You know, they talk about the Baronies of Avalon in the British Isles, the Courts of Love in France and how that looks. And uh, these are all the major, like, monarch areas, right, that are for vampires and what goes on with it. But then they tend to go even further, right? And letting you know that when you're looking at all this and understand that it's a bigger picture of feudal society across these landscapes. But if you want a detailed list of canine nobility, it cites Dark Ages Europe. Then in that book, you can find all that. Now, I love that. This really hasn't been done before. Normally, it would be if you if you like this book and the ideas in it, you're going to go and pick up these three other books and hopefully you you understood because you were following a succession of release that we what we include and didn't include by knowing that. This says, hey, you got the book brand new. Let me direct you where you want to go for more of this vampire stuff. Right. I like the uh, I really like the idea of not repeating yourself. Right. Don't have the same information in two different places, because whenever I've seen authors do that in the past, there's always been you know, confusing differences, right? Then you get people clashing with that. But this, just saying, hey, this is the overview of the situation. You want to know more? Check out this book because that's where that's detailed. Uh, I think that's a great uh, a great move. Um, I know I, as a player and a storyteller, appreciate that. <laughs> when you think of chivalry, you specifically right now, and please, if this book helped you picture that, feel free, Bren. I'm just asking, what do you see chivalry being in these times? 
those times, not today, not 2020, and <laughs> back then. <laughs> okay, thank you for that clarification. Uh, what do I see chivalry being? Uh, I see it as the, um, there is the, uh, the oath of, um, well, the oath of, uh, I'll just say loyalty, right? That you are beholden to a lord and you uh, fight for them. That was my um, uh, prevailing um, perspective on it. Uh, up until reading this book, and this book did a good job of, uh, well, educating me uh, just a bit more about it, uh, especially with the um, the unrealistic ethics that uh, go into it. Hmm. When you say unreal, uh, excuse me, uh, go into that a bit more for me. Unrealistic ethics. Sure thing. Uh, the the book even uh, highlights that right in the. Um, uh, in with the concept of chivalry, there is the uh, the idea that you do not kill unless you um, unless you absolutely have to. There's the the goal of being a, an expert, of being a, a master at what you do, but being humble about it. Right, and it highlights that if someone is so good at something, not being prideful at it is is something that's uh, very difficult to not uh, to not show. Uh, especially during these times, uh, uh, back in medieval Europe, when there is a, um, you know, a stratis uh, stratified society. That's interesting. I know, um, you know, we know history teaches us a, a different, well, I'd say a, a larger perspective than what this is going to be. I encourage everybody to read and look into that, right? Um, they talk about how the nobility use knights as, well, the soldiers for them, right? That's like their personal guard. And those knights, and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm using my terminology, don't don't kill me, history majors, but <laughs> the way it's written, as they, they tell you it happened, when a knight takes an oath to a lord, that lord owes him a certain amount of land to defend, or the promise therein, and some money, right? That's, that's all part of the game. Or at least I'll pay for your shield and your sword, but you owe me service for X amount of years to pay said thing off. By the way, you gotta be a nobleman's son. Or you had to have won some tournament as some soldier and been elevated by somebody of worth to even be in that service, right? Not just anybody could do that and be a knight. When you consider that and you look at chivalry in the terms of war, as they're pointing it out, they try to say there's good war and then there's basically bad war. And what a, what baffles me is that that's even needed to be said, right? Because war is war. It's a mass group. Of, when, when diplomacy fails, war will be had. It's mm -hmm. that simple. And, um, you know, and all sorts of things come out of the woodwork. And to them, good war was basically, we all agreed to uphold chivalry out here. We all meet up. We all lined up. We, You have your soldiers and I have my soldiers. We're all on horses and we have arrows and you have arrows. Valet, valet, are you hurt? Yes, of course. Do you wish to continue? I could kill you. No, I don't. Okay. Take you in. Release. Give me money to get him back. You pay it. We're good. And now whatever we were fighting about, I won. And that's that, which doesn't. I'm in disbelief that that ever occurred, mm -hmm. right? Here's the thing. Looking at people now, and I try to imagine back then when there was even less like, like strict hold, right? It's good to say you're going to be a knight and fall chivalry and everything's good. Walking around looking awesome, doing your thing. I remember watching this uh, Swordmaster on YouTube, right? Definitely a credit. I recommend you looking at it. And I did it when I was reading this book. Because there was terminology being used and I wanted to see, you know, what does a longsword look like in actual use? And it can't all be like you see in The Witcher. 
So what what is it? And then I come to find out the guy's talking and one of the things he points out, if you watch The Witcher, it's a little more fancy for show, but he uses it like you should, right? It's not overly fancy and overly done. He's so-so about it, not what he would have done and had some opinions, but he liked the show enough to mention it. But one of the things he said about knights, which is back to the point, knights didn't walk into battle with their sword. Were you aware of that? Uh... No, I guess I guess I wasn't. Like, what did they have some like squire carrying it for them, or not at all? And that's the misconception, right? I want you to imagine you're going to go into a battle, a real battle, right? We're lined up, battlements, ramparts, everybody's ready to go. The enemy's coming in a horde, and it's gonna happen. And you know what battle is? It's raging, heart pumping, adrenaline combat. You have your armor to survive blows that you couldn't possibly defend against. Because I'm going to be at your elbow, you're going to be at mine, most likely. Right, because we're going to use tactics on the field, and in the course of using tactics in the field, we, we're we're boned if we get charged, right? Because we're on the ground, and if they got lances and all that nonsense, so you're going to need something to deal with it. Your sword is not going to be much help in that scenario. Better to give you a spear or something like that, or what he mentioned in his video, they will most likely have an axe, hmm. right? Because battle is not nice. No, it's no. it's not a good thing. You need something to crush and smash and continue and move on. Of course, you have a shield, but you need block, chop, block, chop. You're rolling through it. You're going to be getting getting messy and getting in with the dirt with everybody else. What if you fall? You can't scramble for a sword. And if you're on the ground looking for this blade, hoping to pick it up to wield it, if someone steps on the end, it's trapped. However, if you have an axe, shorter reach, hopefully you could pick it up, maybe slash an ankle coming up, maybe do something with it. I don't know. Bob is not an expert. But I started digging around to get the entertainment of what my players might be feeling when they're going through this. And I'm like, this is why this book was made. And when it talks about chivalry, I'm like, it's great to have mentioned it, but they don't put an emphasis on it as in, you must be chivalrous. It's that, yeah, there's an ideal. We morally wanted to do this, but basically when barbarism rears its ugly head in the field of battle, that's when it becomes a bad war. Mm-hmm. Right. That's when we're, you know, we're, we're gouging for eyes and biting people's ankle and not following tech because it's chaos at that point. And it's just about the big W pulling it down. It's an interesting thing. Now, all that said, this also rolls into the causes of war. And when you read this section, in particular religion, what do you think of it? The war, I mean, um... But the war of religion, that's, uh, that's uh, for this time period, I think um, whenever someone would think of a cause for a war, this would be like the number one reason, right? Because in these time periods, the Crusades are probably the first thing people think about. Uh, the, the idea to, you know, reclaim the Holy Land or to uh, uh, protect uh, the pilgrims. But um, I think with all of this, it kind of... Well, it kind of showed that even when it's a war for religion, there's even when that's the the standpoint, there are always uh, material gains that are really coming of it, right? Whether that's uh, stamping out a heresy so that uh, you know the the church retains more control, or that there are riches taken from these uh, you know so called heathens or whatever. That it's um. When I was reading this, I got the the idea that the a war for religion served more as addressing for some of the other reasons that came later. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And I had a, I had a similar take 
initially going over it, but I had to, I had to keep going back. Right. Mm-hmm. There's key things that just slipped through the cracks here um, for me when I had, you know, when I went back, I saw it. And one of them was talking about the truce of God or the peace of God. Right. To be so religious, so profoundly devout that you truly believe that on Sunday God rested. So you will not war no matter what it was. Right. Mm-hmm. That's profound. Right. And it's that there are other holy periods, too, that some probably did uh, respect and obey, but typically they fall apart if the enemy's coming. And that lesson was learned hard, right? It talks about the Lithuanian, uh, Livonian knights, right? And how they died battling forces under the spirit talker uh, Mindogan, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, the knights set up outside of uh, Zimacha, if I pronounced that correctly. If I butchered it, it's Bob. I'm sorry. Uh, but that's... <laughs> Uh, but that's but that's what it is, right? And uh, they set up outside, but because the the peace of God, they were trusting to it. They believed that God would not permit blood to be shed on a day, uh, the next day, which is like Sunday. So they posted up, ready to fight, and they were going to rest, and they went to sleep thinking they were fine. Well, Madagan woke up and came over, and they were like, "Well, they're well, let's just ambush them. They're asleep." Mm-hmm. And I did I did like that they moved to his perspective for a bit, and by him I mean Madagan. He woke up, he saw that. And he took that as a sign that his spirits were with him. So even right. then, he was still acting in accordance with uh, his religion. Which makes that sinister. Mm-hmm. Right? We're still going with the same logic, just different ways to approach it. And I'm assuming that probably wasn't ever obeyed again. <laughs> when facing, <laughs> right? If, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm a Christian knight or king and I'm going to go to war with another Christian king, we can count on the peace of God. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to fight the Gauls, maybe not. Not that that ever would have happened because, you know, the time. But you get my point. Right. You just do. skip on that. It goes over to the Crusades. We're not. Crusades have been talked to exhaustive length, right? About what goes on. But it does mention them in case you missed those books, those chapters, that era to shed some light on what has occurred, right? And uh, just war and the Crusader mentality to get into that as well. I found that to be very interesting. And definitely I'd go through it, right? Uh, because here's where they talk about taking the cross, right? Basically, it's the uh, Crusaders' vows signifying the cross sewn under their uh, their garment, right? Meaning they they agreed to the terms and have devoted themselves to the cause, and and what that is. It's better to read it. I don't want to butcher it. Also, a little uncomfortable to talk about because a lot of Christians out there, and um, like I, for instance, engaged in a conversation with a person who was trying to explain to me that there are still many different ways that kind of honor uh, devotion. And, you know, that you could be taken too lighthearted, can be misconstrued as insensitive. I don't want to give that impression at all. Uh, neither does this book. And it, and it doesn't do that. But I would prefer, read it. It's good. It's the title called Just War and the Crusade Mentality. It'll definitely give you that strong perspective uh, to set you in that mood and mindset for your chronicle. Um, but one that I do enjoy, the Albigonesian Crusade. Now, this one, in, in conjunction with the Reconquista, we'll do a comparison here. What do you think was worse? What happened to the Albigonesian Crusade and its occurrence, or what happens with the Reconquista? I would say, if I was comparing the two, um, and Albigonesian I'm making, Crusade would be, would be worse. But, uh, I mean, these are... I, I think both of these are still, you know, uh, travesties in their own right. It seemed as though the Albigonesian Crusade, like there was definitely armies on both sides, but that one targeted people who, reading about them, they seemed like people that really meant no ill will towards other people, and 
the the reasons for starting right that that's like we talked about earlier a religious war but both of these are actually both the Reconquista and the Albigensian Crusade but this um this one just uh it kind of left like a, a feeling in the pit of my stomach you know what I mean yeah I do I do and uh whenever I read the Albigensian Crusade I get uh my, my feels are hit mm-hmm. right because at core what is it well we don't believe exactly like you do and you're the church Right. But our beliefs very much align with the peace and goodwill you're talking about. And it just so happens that in a time of a plague, we we live differently. Right. We practice eating vegetables more so than meat because we didn't like to kill. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, pacifists almost. And we're over here living the life, doing what we do. We permitted the any religion really to be followed. But through our own beliefs in the town, they were spreading around and we were being us. Right. You could look that up to read all about that. However, and here it talks about how Pope Innocent III declared it a heresy, mm-hmm. and it had to be eliminated. Now, to understand the Pope's side of the thing, you're the Pope. <laughs> when you're the Pope, and you say, conduit of God, what are you doing? You're over here, and we're protecting you. Those are our borders, our lords, our knights. We, we have a king. It's in the name of God. Like, what is this, what is this duality? What are you doing? Like, you knew where this was going to go. And... Not that it says exactly here. You had to know. And there was some form of warning that came from the church, probably on a couple levels, you know, cease and desist. And again, we're talking about that strong core of faith, right? That morality that is built from religion that, that really sets people on a path of what they believe is right. Even the Medoggins out there, right? And uh, that's what really kind of breaks your heart because when not hurting anybody and suddenly the, you know, even the king of France was like, I, I'm not declaring it. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I, he was called on twice, and twice he said, "I'm not doing this. Like, this, I'm not taking part in this." It's just the second time he said, "I will allow vassals to engage in this," and it was on. And why did people answer that crusade? And this is important. Most of them take land, mm-hmm. right? They knew you you screwed up. The Pope has said, and you said basically, "Come, come, make us." So we know, lords and other land ships, that there's going to be a land grab. Where you're at and what do we hear our lands were hit by plague your hands your lands for some reason weren't mm-hmm. and that's that's it and they come in and there's all sorts of uh stuff you can look into soil types rotation they did more plants than animals uh we didn't have the standards we do now for butchering animals uh, not only humanely but ideally cleanly mm-hmm. and uh that you know all that ties into it and who knows right plagues happen in that era and e- even now you know so i don't know I won't go there right now, but anyway, basically, <laughs> basically, so that happens. That's why it hits hard for me, but it also speaks of a, of a type of, of a segregated mind, right? It says that if you are not this certain type of way, if you are not like us, we will kill you and we will take everything you had. And when I think about it, I'm like, but what about your rules, your morals and everything else? Mm-hmm. And again, we're back into that cycle of what this book is saying, right? It spoils of war and the causes of those wars. Mm-hmm. And that's how it goes down. The Reconquista is the same thing, and I know we talked a lot about that as well, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, um, but the same thing, right? It, it is mentioned in here, so it could help you jumpstart what goes on, including the cross-purposes of clanless armas Amici Noctis, and uh, what they did to promote tensions within their own. <laughs> the Lasombra, I love them, mm-hmm. right? And this is what I'm talking about. They were like, well... Uh, you guys are going to fight for what? A religion we predate. 
<laughs> hey, we're immortal. Those living people need religion. We typically are just like, sure, you know, toss a coin to your witcher and move on and call it a day. But uh, if you're going to kill each other over it, um, kill the guy that I don't like over here first. And uh, we'll talk about replacing the guy on the left you want gone. Mm-hmm. But that meant there was a middle guard completely cruel doing this, right? And uh, standing to the side making it happen. Now, the concept here that they go into that is deep that I don't want to gloss over. Um, there's a lot of sensitivity in terms of mentioning like Middle Eastern things heard in the news and stuff like that. And I feel this book, when I was reading this, I really hope they did it justice. And I, of course they did. Um, when it talks about the Islamic concept of the jihad, right? It's often misunderstood, often taken to mean the, the conquest and conversion of lands by force of arms. It's actually more complex and involves spiritual struggles uh, within yourself and efforts to spread the Islamic faith. It's, and honestly, I feel it's more religious uh, dogma and philosophy, and it's not an assault on necessarily a person uh, physically. It's challenging their way of life to be more of a way of peace as they say it, right? In particular, mm-hmm. talking to other people of the book, as they call it. And in here, we kind of see the seeds of the Asherah, right? And their importance that that's, that's what they do. To be a member of the Asherah is to be Muslim, right? As a vampire. Now, that we read. We went over that. We know how that goes. But it's talking about how that, where that power comes from. And of all the sects that are out there, right? Or will be formed. This is one you see form up because of religion only and stay strong because of that faith. That community. And that's profound, right? And it also is from a point where they're not exactly innocent either, right? That's the other part I want to I want to state this. They're still living in a time where they're being shown on all sides that if you don't have a working army, if you don't have a means of protecting yourself and defending your border, someone will come and take you for everything you have. And so they, they will defend themselves. And they kind of build that up. But then it goes farther. Why? Well, men, right? Um, I mean humans, I don't mean men versus women or anything like that. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Human beings, okay? That's what I mean. And uh, that's there's, there's, there's an evil. We're dual beings in terms of one man's good is another man's bad. Or woman, for that matter. And that's, the, that's kind of the take from it. And it's important to mention, because if you're going to run a game about a war, you're going to have a group of players that are going to ask you why. Why should they care? Why are we involved? And what should we do about it? And asking that question why, that can derail your entire game if you don't have a system set up for them to explore that and discover what it means for the characters, in my opinion. What do you think? I, I agree with that 100%, right? Like, uh, I know I've run into issues like that before. Like, why are you, what, what is the character's purpose for being here? How do they have that buy-in, right? And them understanding the, not just uh, their characters but the culture they're in well that's a part of their character right that's intrinsic to it uh, for them understanding that um you're in the middle of a war and your your home where you've lived your entire time your people are you know under attack from people that want to take everything uh that's um i mean that's just one reason for uh for buy-in like one uh one driving motivation for uh, a chronicle such as that is there, I don't know, when I, when I look at this section, and in, in kind of in to your point, I'm now curious as to what chivalric shiv, uh, orders you were drawn to, because it gives you a, like a bunch yeah, um, in this does. section to look at. What, what were your favorites, your top two? 
Uh, Templars are, are always going to be one. I'm, I'm a fan of the <laughs> Templar conspiracy <laughs> theories. That's always going to go back to it, right? Um, uh, and then the number one, uh, or the number two, rather, or in close for number one, is the uh, the Order of St. Lazarus, right? They're, uh, they're uh, a knightly order, but they're focused on caregiving of weapons. I, I always have a soft, soft spot for any, like, um, I guess, caregiver type honestly or like defender type so people that um actually care show that they care about the people around them or their wards uh those are always going to be uh the favorites of mine <laughs> i i never would have guessed the uh, saint lazarus huh all right solid um i am a fan of the lines of rodrigo as my number one um this this canadian military order basically they're dedicated to the shadow of reconquista Right, that's what's going on. Where uh, it's more or less, it's Lasambar against the Muslim Ashira mm-hmm. and conquest of Iberia. They're, they're fighting over it tooth and claw. Or I should say, Christians, not just Lasambar, because there's more clans over there than just that. And uh, the Ashira kind of duking it out. And part of that Shadow Reconquista naturally are the orders that they that they can oppose them. They can meet out there, and uh, that's more or less where the uh, the poor knights of the Passion of the Cross of Acre. It's a lot to say, mm-hmm. um, but. They do the same thing, and I, I had a chance to read bits and pieces of these knightly orders to understand where, what they went through and, for some, how they're cruelly done in. And uh, it gives you a lot to understand the importance uh, people were putting on uh, not only religion but a way of life. And that's, and that's the mistake I think that's made a lot, is that when you think that all they did back then was war because religion says so, it's, well, for us, it's get up and go to church on a specific day. Maybe you donate, maybe you don't. Participate in a big sale. And kind of spread the word if it comes up in conversation, right? For them, it was wake, eat, live those precepts under the watchful eye of, you know, the clergy or the uh, priestess or depending on your religion, um, those of your faith in positions of power. And those people sort of kept you on the straight and narrow, not for control. At least I don't think it was for control. I just think that's all they knew. And that mindset, when you hang on to it, talks about basically you're playing fanatics, and you have to be. If we trained you to war and that's what you do, you're going to fight for what you believe in. And that's, uh, well, the only thing of importance. However, the part two of war. We know the politics of wars. We're definitely not going to go into that. There's just not enough time in the world, right, mm-hmm. uh, for all that. But uh, I will point out they do get into the omens war uh, that goes on here, right, and uh, what what that's about. And, again, that's sort of the – not even sort of. It's the persecution. On, that comes after that, right? So you got the uh, Zemis versus uh, the Tremere, the Tremere versus the Ventru, and, uh, excuse me, I said that backwards. The Zemis versus the Ventru and Tremere, but the Tremere only with the Ventru by dint of survival. Right. Right, it's the basics of uh, manipulation that shows through, but it's all political, right? And that's how the Tremere end up really surviving uh, what goes on. That and dastardly diablery that can't be confirmed unless you're a dirty... <laughs> Dirty salubris lie. They're infernalists. We know that. Um, so follow the straight and narrow. You know, go Team Hakeem. But that's yeah. how the... It's uh, <laughs> how that rolls. <laughs> go Team Hakeem. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's the nightly half, right? That they get into in the politics of mortals. And remember, they're writing in the back of where these mortals choose to go. Mm-hmm. Right? The war of resources is a different matter. And in here, it talks about, you know, wealth is great. But here's where we start seeing kind of peel away from talking about vampires and interactions and what's going on. Because when you think of resources of war, food, water, land, uh, land to hunt on, places to raise your family, that's just not for the dead. 
right? That's not a high focus. Like they want to have it because you want your blood sources healthy. But I like how this book subtly shifts. It's like we're talking about Canis and what goes on, deep politics, all that, all that is great. And then it rolls into, hey, the guru. We're talking about werewolves now. Because now that we're opening up to resources and what goes on, we need to see how the mortals are interacting in the back of what Guru and Canines might or might not have been doing. And they kind of share the stage in the book at this point. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good share. Um, however, I kind of raised my eyebrows when we started thinking about the, the idea that when you get into the culture of what goes on in the, in the competition uh, therein, i.e., even if you call it a competition, they talk about wars of culture. Um, what did you take away from that section? What my reading this uh, section, it was really, really hard for me to to really cut this as a separate thing from a war of religion, right? Like, I, I feel as though that any war of religion would also be a war of culture because that's that's important to it, right? And I I couldn't really I can see why. Actually, I, I had a hard time seeing why these two weren't uh, more uh, close together. Do you have an example? Um, like, well, reading through this uh, in War of Culture, it still mostly talks about, uh, you know, a war between different religious groups, uh, predominantly um, like uh, Christians and uh, uh, Muslims. Uh, it does talk about how those two religious groups do still, uh, you know, trade with each other, still talk with each other, and um, uh, live side by side whenever they're on borders. Um, uh, particularly talking about the uh, uh, the Jews of uh, Iberia uh, living with uh, Muslims in Al Andalusa, or um, uh, yeah, I believe that's that's the area that was called and then also in northern Spain uh, with the Christians but um, it's still uh, every time it still seemed as though uh, religion was the focus of it I'm gonna agree with you there um, they titled that out to kind of give a reason to explain all the other because because really they start slipping in now don't forget the messianic voices uh, mm-hmm. right referring to mages right a little subtle hint there um, right. the shadow inquisition doing her thing you know, rode the backs of the Teutonic Knights, the Ashura still here, Frankish Canines. They might as, well, might as well just said, all these people will be fighting somewhere. Just strap in and know <laughs> that they're going to be fighting, right? And yeah. it's like, okay, we know that. All right, cool. And uh, that's, that's where it goes. Uh, but the waging of war on land is something that I could say that if it's a section you need and you never saw a military map or thought of it, never looked at need an idea, uh, they'll give you some numbers to chew on, some things to look up to kind of see uh, what they're envisioning. Uh, when it comes to this, some famous battles they cite to check out. Um, I did one or two, and it's pretty spot on. Um, fun fun to do if you've got the time. Um, but I will say I didn't see how, how I would do it. And what I mean by that is often when I build a campaign, I, I run by the rule that if it's something that's going to take too much time for me to research, is it a value to, to display? Right? If, if I have the concept of objectives and methods of battle relating to mortals are not going to be the objectives and methods relating to vampires. Right. Or guru or mages. Right. Right. And different reasons. And we'll keep it to vampires. What's the number one reason you could think of? And yes, this is a trick question that (laughs) I'm baiting you completely recorded (laughs) for all time. It's a trick question. So why do you think, or what would be the differing point 
of why vampires would fight wars on land differently than, we'll say, mortals. Why would vampires fight a war differently than mortals? Right. Focused on objectives and methods. Um, they don't have the, the numbers of mortals and they can't ride out into a field during the day. I think uh, straight up, uh, you know, clashes is pretty actually pretty unrealistic for a vampire. I'd agree. That's something we read off the bat in uh, previous books. The uh, mm-hmm. the concept that you know no vampire is taking a field. You're skirmish fighting. Mm-hmm. If anything, you're one of the only people that could see at night, right? Right. And you're out, <laughs> if you can, and and you're out there and what? It's like oh, I woke up. They what did they talk about me at court? Tell me, Paige. Oh, I was mocked by the jester. That's we have a war. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's wake everybody up who's been warring all day. Fighting a, what are they fighting for again? Well, sir, your subjects were tired of being stepped on. There was a, a revolt where we're now under siege. That's what all those people are out there doing. That's all the big camp lights out in the distance with the fires. Yeah, they're here to kill like all our friends. <laughs> and you and you just woke up and yeah, the jester mocked you, but uh I mean you wanna go kill the I mean, come on. Well, give me the best four nights that will wake up, and uh, we'll we'll ride out and we'll take care of these ruffians right away. That does not sound like an exciting. Well, I'm lying. For comical reasons, that would be very entertaining. Actually, now I'm thinking about it, and uh, I won't say it would be ineffective, other than to say that uh, as an overall, you probably want a more in-depth grab. Uh, for, for a reason, for an objective and a method, right? Or unless you're an ancient. I suppose if you're a Methuselah, we're just throwing the pages off the table anyway. Um, but, <laughs> you know, do suit yourself. But that, that's the main goal. This is saying what people would do, and that uh, on the back of them would be what the immortals have going on. Most likely, politics were dictated during the night, and orders given, and during the day they were followed. And you're waking up to see that. That's There's not much attention towards that sort of read between the lines. Uh, but they do add the stuff that maybe you were having difficulties thinking of, like uh, the supernatural denizens, the dark medieval world become, uh, their, their goals often include more rarefied targets, right? That if they're going to fight, it's probably going to be at a cairn, mm-hmm. right? That's where they're going to target. You know, we know the werewolves came from here. Uh, let's get them because we're the Zemis. And the Zemis did, uh, or at least they say they did, the Voivodes often had sport in hunting werewolves. They were a natural part of their landscape up there in Romania. And that's in Transylvania specifically. That's 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 how that happens. Mm-hmm. I, if I remember correctly, that was a favorite pastime of uh, Rustovich. Good memory. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that too. Um, that's one of many, right? And that gets mm-hmm. crazy. But every supernatural uh, group has some special place to have, and that's what they direct you towards. It starts by saying, "Yeah, you be mortals. You're up there the day. Read about all these orders and look up these famous battles, and they roll into immediately." But we're supernatural. And they don't give you a lot, but they give you enough to go and need to rethink uh, how that's going to be for your game. Beautiful deal. Now, the rest of this is about um, types of soldiers you're going to have and, and ways to get into, but I kind of want to get to the rest of the stuff, right? Right. There is a, there's a lot more to go into. They, they cover with siege craft and how to siege. And, well, we, we've seen the movies where people siege towers, siege castles, and how horrible they could be. If you're mm-hmm. a fan of Game of Thrones, you definitely saw it through the series. And they get into that, which I feel was more than enough uh, for a lot of people. Definitely visceral to take a look. But there are rules in here for talking about um, siege engines, what they do, the damage they do, and all the crunch that goes in. Uh, they even go down into different types of trade bouchets, which I think is completely um, needed, right? 
And that's mm-hmm. something that we all think about. And well, not all. <laughs> Some people can envision what would hit a castle, and that's exactly what this is for, right? So that's the that's the over under. We'll call it that. Um, but chapter two, chapter two, we get to the idea of uh, how do I put it? Poison people. Yep. Right. It just it should get straight to the nitty gritty of it, right? And uh, I didn't really uh, expect to see that. I mean, the book is called Spoils of War, right? And you may be thinking, how did you not think of that? Um, Very, (laughs) very simple. I think Spoils of War, I'm thinking, uh, well, uh, maybe this is just all about combat. And some people who did some cool stuff and some folks and that's it. Thumbs up. No, completely wrong. And so that's uh, that's the process, I guess. Well, enough of that. Um, Brentron, opening up in a Poison Quill, um, it talks about assassination. What are the various forms? Of, what does it get into here? Talk to me about the assassination and Spoils of War. So uh, assassination is, uh, well, a way to win a war without having to muster a large amount of troops. Uh, I think in the, in the beginning of this, it talks about how usually in any war or conflict, actually marshalling uh, armies is probably going to be your last resort just because of how intensive it is so with uh the favorite second approach is the uh the assassination and i actually enjoyed uh this this uh section uh because it um it kind of uh, sideswiped me with uh with the first approach and that is the the public demise right like sometimes you want to um uh killing a person to make a statement right um and even the different reasons for why you'd kill them. I think it gives one uh, one insidious example of um, uh, you don't you don't actually assassinate your enemy. You assassinate uh, a popular enemy of your enemy to turn people against him to make it look like he's the one that did this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's uh, wow. All right, we're going we're going pretty uh, sinister here. I, it's- I can dig it. I think of it as the little finger chapter, but please continue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, uh, showing that, hey, you know, um, their assassination is probably actually a favorite approach of people. You know, I want to take them out without anyone knowing it was me. That's hard to do. That's incredibly hard to do. Like, you can't <laughs> almost... Uh, unrealistic because, you know, think about who's going to do it, right? If you do it yourself you get caught, uh, you hire someone else to do it. Well, they can just talk, so then you got to assassinate the assassin, but then do you assassinate the assassin's assassin? <laughs> we now see why they call it poison quills. Yeah. Right? you got to do it. We're killing to kill to kill to not be blamed for mm-hmm. killing. It's a slippery slope if I ever heard one. Right. But it does get into uh, a blow to the morale. Mm-hmm. Right? So sometimes it's that's not the goal of the assassin's true target. Every bit of what you're talking about, right? And uh, it's if you have an enemy that's indomitable on the field of battle or they're well-loved or whatever, you know you can't take them, but uh, how's his wife doing? Are they close? How close? Would you say he couldn't live without her? You you do say. Well, <laughs> I wish them the best of health, and I'm sending him a gift and throwing him a party. And I'm going to poison the wine. I know he doesn't drink it, and she will. And that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's dastardly thought process, right? Mm-hmm. But what they're doing is making it to where you don't want to fight, to where you can't. Or you can't respond to all that going on because it's one of the ways to climb that that theater of war. 
uh, to kind of go through it and uh, wrap your mind around it. But when advancing one's own position, this is where I saw that section and immediately I thought of an immersive game taking place in a battlefield night to night, right? Where it was always somebody trying to plot against the boss on high. Like, here's my thought. Can you imagine being part of the Roman army and kind of get out near Gaul? You know, and they're like, oh, you built the fortification. Great. We're here, but you're on watch. And there's just a, a wall of Gauls come to attack. <laughs> and and your commander, he's in the back drinking wine. He's eating some boar you guys happen to hunt. Some of the cheese they brought for him. But he's getting wine. You had gruel. You had gruel, and if you're lucky, sliced onion thrown in a pot to fill your belly. You're out here now dying to make sure he lives. And what's his order? Hold the line, gentlemen. You're doing good. I wonder... Who wants to be the captain now, right? Or the commander? Who's yeah. going to climb those ranks, right? And, and hopefully you don't. Uh, but Rome is awesome because it had many ways to making that not the thing. And I've never heard of a Roman leader in the face of impending death shirking from combat. So that's the uh, that's the idea. Don't send it to me. Leave my boy fantasies where they belong. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. All right? I want to keep it solid. <laughs> I want to hear about it. Uh, I'm just joking. Please, any questions you have or corrections, feel free. Um, but this chapter does roll on. And it goes through the uh, not only the allies, like you said, um, self-assassination threw me for a loop. Right. I'd, same here. I, well, um, hit me with ahead. it. Hit me with it. When you read it, what were you thinking of? I was like, so is this... this? When I first read it, I was like, are they... I, I could never in a million years seeing a vampire martyring themselves intentionally... Um, it seemed as though self-assassination was actually like, uh, uh, someone's attempting to assassinate you, but you survive, so you just roll with the punches and fake your death. That, that's ended up being what it is, like, to take you out of someone else's crosshairs, right? Yeah. Um, taking, taking a, like, a, a back step and turning it into a, an advantage was the real idea behind it. It's uh, it's dastardly for certain, mm-hmm. right? It talks about someone with the mind to be... If, if you didn't catch on with what we're talking about here so far in this whole chapter, talking about the various means of strategy of assassination, it's understanding that this is a person who either doesn't have an army, doesn't have the means, or it would be poor for them to step into the limelight to risk anything. Uh, so they do it through other people. But now they're talking about self-assassination. When you're that vampire who the Inquisition targeted, how do you get out of their limelight? And uniquely, you're, you're suited to it, right? They just need to see me die at night on a grand scale. It's going to ruin the shirt, but a good drawn and quartering helps some people, I hear. It's good for the spine, right? <laughs> and uh, hopefully you know you can live through it. And it happens, and your servants take care of you, you heal, and you throw on the old potato sack over the head, and no one recognizes you as you slip into the leper colony, hoping no one noticed. And it's so you can come back after you've outlived your enemies. Right, It's an interesting thing to do. Also, it brought to light of another aspect as you read it. That strategy works more than we like to think it doesn't, right? Look at modern politics, and I won't dive deep at all, but just to make that statement, I'm certain you can see where left and right, that's kind of a known strategy well uh, practiced nowadays. Now, uh, I know what you're thinking. Who's faked their death? It's not what I'm saying. Self-assassination can be your own reputation. Right, It could be a stance you took and then cleverly say, no, it wasn't me, or you just ignore the fact you said it in the first place. Okay, yeah. Now, right? now I'm following. Okay, good. 
If you were lost, probably everyone was. But that's where I was going. I wasn't talking about actually faking, you know, drinking poison or nothing like that. That's uh, it's never worked. Um, but uh, not that I tried. I just never heard of that being done. Anyway, uh, so repercussions. It goes over too, and what could happen. And this section is more or less for storytellers. It's talking about, well, I guess players too. Give an insight as to why you're not walking around trying to assassinate all the time. Because you're assassinating to a point. It's to move larger pieces of that game you're playing uh, that, honestly, it is political, in my opinion, to assassinate at all. It is to move a nation in some degree or some possibility to get an effect done uh, by making it seem however you orchestrate it through someone's death. And uh, even if that apparently is yours, that you fake. These repercussions help you walk through. I myself was like, hmm, I had never thought of that. Right? So, for instance, it says a certain group such as uh, the Asimites abide by codes of professional behavior that forbid extortion of former employees or employers, excuse me. Well, that's that's awesome to know. Did I not know that? Well, let's just put it this way. The rebranding that the Asimite client has gone through over a couple times, you kind of lose that fact that, yeah, they do contracts, but that was after the curse. Is this precursor? What would it be? And it's interesting to read that even precursor, they weren't sure they'll help you. They'll work with you and do whatever. They'd still take your uh, uh, follow process of being hired to go do something, but they still don't extort former employers. And is that because of a code of honor or a reason? It's just professionalism. Right. Exactly. You can't you can't keep business if you just screw over the people that hired you in the first place. You got to protect your reputation. And for me, that was an eye opener. I was like, "Oh yeah, forgot about that. It's good." I'll be, I'll be honest. Uh, I, I was one of the people that thought the the Esmites only took contracts after the curse as a way to to get blood as part of their price, right? The uh, I, I figured that pre curse, they would have just been well, uh, their main focus would just be judgment, not being hired out by other people. Now, what I'll say to that is, is that no doubt there were Asimites who precursed operated under that, right? You read about it. The stories of rampant diablery running around, killing, doing what they want. Hey, if Alamut isn't right behind you, if if five Lasombra die in Iberia and there's no one from Alamut around, who's going to know how they went, right? <laughs> Fair point. So it just kind of gets into that. Um Tell me about poisons. Now, no, typically in a book, I, I'm kind of eh about poisoning, but mm-hmm. this one, I'm 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 holding my opinion till I hear yours. Uh, so it starts out well out the gate with uh, what everyone's first thought would be for poisons, right? For straight up murder, uh, and it talks about how that's uh, incredibly difficult for all but like inquisitors, right? Um, and most or some mages. Uh, vampires, what you can't you can't poison them directly, right? Guru, like what, they just kind of shrug it off. Uh, but it goes into the uh, the subtler aspects of poisons, right? Like maybe the idea isn't to straight up kill them, but weaken them for a fight later, or uh, maybe you want to induce them to to madness, right? So that they're no longer thinking straight, they can't make decisions, or they lash out at those around them. Uh, there's a and there's an example of that last one uh, for Guru specifically in a, later on in the book. And I, I guess we'll talk about that when we get to it. But um, uh, again, this was another um, uh, a pivot with, uh, from where I thought they were going to go with it. That being said, uh, I, I still don't think 
uh, aside from the magical poisons that are really only available to mages, that this is a very um, uh, a viable approach for a lot of a lot of characters. And uh, what I saw to this, and again, I'm always thinking the vampire side because I think the others. When you're alive, there's a lot more options of how to kill, right? That's just we're talking about war. That's just where it's at. Um, for vampires, though, when it talks about poisons and mystical poisons and all that, I think the angle to take is the opportunities of obtaining them to use them accordingly, right? The value of retainers represents something completely different or, you know, backgrounds as a whole and their applications to control. Oh, well, we'll just say there's a, a lord in your land and he's the one who, yeah, he's a descendant. You've taken care of the family. Of course, he rose to it. Your, your weird Uncle Bob sitting back in the castle that gets to be there. <laughs> No one knows why. And he doesn't want to listen to you because he's a he's a hedonist. He's ruining the fortune. Bad decisions and worse. He's now friends with pirates. And nobody cares. And uh, that, that's what's going on. Well, how am I going to control that guy? What am I going to do? I can't be seen out there doing anything because someone might recognize, hey, you look awfully like that guy in that statue we have in town. <laughs> Anyone ever tell you that? You know, there's problems with being, you know, whatever. But what if I poisoned him? Because I think his wife is one hell of an intelligent woman who's back there basically spinning plates trying to keep that house afloat. But if I put her in charge of the fortune, I, I hear she'll at least do better than him. And at that point, I just find another family strong enough to marry in, have the land, take care of my needs, and I'll just ghoul them or whatever I'm going to do. And it suddenly becomes an option, right? It's on the mm -hmm. table that is less exposure for what, what I choose to do. I don't know. I think things sometimes. But anyway, other than poisons getting diseases, we all know how that goes. We're just going to leave that be. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's mentioned in there as well. Talking about food supply, I mentioned that. It is in here, but it's talking about how to ruin a food supply or weaken an army, right? How to, how to eliminate it. Again, this is how to seed something and take it, not grow it. And uh, that's, that's something that is, uh, well, I hope you never knew about it until you read it in this book, but no, it was done in history. And uh, that's... It's always hard to read uh, the things that were done in the name of, well, greed most times. And uh, that's the uh, that's the effect. But they do it due diligence and they don't dwell on it forever, which is always going to be good. Um, and again, they also roll into alliances in the dark medieval world. Uh, ways canines help out diplomatically, trying to move uh, different armies to come in and do things. Um, how the alliances are important to the canines. How, guess what? there very well may have been uh, werewolves unwittingly working through proxy, working with vampires to an agenda. Right? How would they know? How would either side know if they're dealing, you know, this isn't them directly dealing. But again, same lord. Could be the whole reason I had the guy poisoned anyway. Right? <laughs> Too many wolf howls in the land. Who knows? Um, may just kind of get their stay here, and they talk about all these allegiances the supernaturals have and how they handle it, but it kind of takes away from what you're using a book for. Now we're in the weeds. If you don't, if you just have a vampire campaign, a lot of this book's going to be, all right, that's interesting to know, but am I going to use them here or am I just going to overlook them? And that's exactly how you really got to approach it. Now, um, talking about all this though, there is a, there is a section of this book uh, that we start up where they go into preparing for battle, right? This is where we get crunch heavy, right? We're talking about the types of, of troops that you bring to battle how they fight, what it's like when a vampire takes that, uh, get, any supernatural gets out there in the field, what that looks like, pillaging, renowned gain, how to create certain scenarios 
where the focus isn't the overall battle, but the part the players would be in, and what they could do for it, and what that looked like. Resources to obtain. All that lovely, lovely crunch of how to wage war, that's in here. Including Armies of the Shadows. And in that section, you're going to get into, uh, you know, blood, ghouls, and you. All that. Uh, relating with the other supernatural creatures and what to do with that. Um, they show you also that battles were won via morale most times. Right. That's that's important. Um, we won't stop and spend a lot of time on there because I kind of want to... I think at this point, this book has done everything it could uh, to explain what war is and uh, getting to those objectives of what goes on. And it then gets into areas where, you know, the important political people that are over there and the fights that go in. And it's all very concise and to the point that is digestible for you to decide very quickly if you would use it or not. And, you know, that's that's the important part. What I will tell you, if you were a fan of the Rite of Princes book, chapter four dives into the domains of uh, those cliques, right? Those groups that were participated uh, in Rite of Princes that were all built up. They gave you all the examples. Well, in Spose of War, it's about how to tear them down. Mm -hmm. How to go at them. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It states at the beginning of this that uh, Spoils of War is about the really focusing on the offense of war. There's nothing There's nothing good here. There's no building of anything. It's just a book about tearing things down. And that makes it hard, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because how do you not cheat? I call it <laughs> cheating, right? I call it cheating. I thought about this so hard. I was like, I'm going to run a Dark Ages game and it's going to be real easy. I'm going to take the Cult of Lamash 2, and that's where we're going to be at. And the players are going to dance around all that, and we'll build it up, defend the fiefdom, and then I'm just going to open the spoils of war, read what they did, and try these tactics against players and see if they notice. Right? I know what you're thinking. Bob, that's sinister. No, that's an, X, that's an ST hack. That's exactly <laughs> what that, that is. That's an ST hack. I promise you. Everyone do this for me. It's free advice. Try it. It'll work, I guarantee it, but just try it, and you'll be amazed. Do a one-shot. Get all the characters together, hand them out. I don't care what the roles are, just as they're vampires, I'm sure have fun. Then I want you to grab a supplement. Pick any one of the ones released. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of these mini stories, right? I'm just not. However, you can pick any one of those. You're supposed to hunt a Methuselah and just use the NPCs in those books for other things. Same area, same neck of the woods, same places. You could even alter the stories that allegedly happened in there and be like, nah, it's garbage. I'm not using it. I'm going to use this over here. They said this guy's a ghoul, now I'm having him embrace. Quick quit switch. And a lot of it right. is moving cups. You change the names. See if your players notice. That's I'll tell you, that's what I've done in most of my Chronicles of Darkness games. Like They have lists of NPCs and uh, specific books, so I'll take some out of them, some out of there, and change them up and throw them into the story, and most of the time people don't know. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you are just cranking out, use the storyteller you have to create. Mm-hmm. A living, breathing world. And in the case of Spoils of War, when it gives you the domains of different sort of creatures and, and coteries, awesome. But they did it so you could wreck them. They did <laughs> so you could use them. They did it so you can actually apply them. Yeah, they did. I'm amazed how many people go, it was in a book and printed, it's canon and untouchable. I promise you, I enjoy every single time I get to kill a canon character in White Wolf. Yeah, absolutely. There's a polite victory. That's in my head when it happens, not because it's badly written, not because the character is any sort of opinion I have on it, but the glimmer in a player's eye when it occurs is so tremendous, right? 
I've been there. I, I've been in that other side, right? Where, you know, oh man, someone, uh, you know, for me, I threw a party when inadvertently something I did killed Lucita. <laughs> right? I did. I went to Denny's that night and I was like, Cokes are on me. She's dead. Woo! And they were like, Bob, what'd your venture do? I called the vote. That's it. I called the vote that got her exposed. She died during the day. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And the ST was like, yep, sure did. That's what he did. Only to a month later, bring her back, sitting in a leasing to stare at me. Man. Right? Was I mad? Absolutely. Was I enjoying it? Absolutely. <laughs> I never laughed so hard in my life. Right? Because somebody's getting screwed. He enjoyed the fact that I was buying Cokes for 15 people to celebrate the death of a fictitious character that he spent no time putting in a book and he used this chronicle for one night. <laughs> right? And because I did that, he was like, I gotta see the look on his face. When she walks up, I was like, yeah, we could do now. I got my pocket protector. I'm rolling with my accountant ghoul. What? 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 And I got put in torpor. It was all right. <laughs> you know? You uh, plays the game, you know? You risk, it's the chances, right? That's what you do, but it was a fun tale. I had a blast with it. And I encourage you, when you go over Chapter 4... Do that with these coteries. Play with it. You know your troop. You know your players. They're they are brilliantly built uh, to just come in and alter or enjoy them as is and, and have that fun. Now, there is a final piece of this. Uh, Nate and I did it every time. And I normally talk to your off about whether or not uh, this book was a viable purchase, right? That's usually what folks, well, I've been told, just get to the point. Here's the point. But I want to redress this, right? Brentron. Under how to use this book, it said it's a resource for STs and players alike. Do you feel it meets that? Uh, I do feel it would be uh, good for both players and storytellers. Um, I believe it would be most useful for basically, well, campaigns that involve conquest. That's that's what this book is about, and I feel as though that's where it would really the resources in here would shine the most. Now. Having said that, talks about that players would have an idea of warfare, feudal duty, and taking the cross. Do you remember taking the cross is basically an oath to the crusade? Right. Right? Do you feel it gives you an idea of how to do that and it does it well? I feel as though it gives a good overview of those aspects. Uh, in each of the sections where it talks about those, it links back to the other books where that's really uh, focused on, like Ashen Knight for the chivalry aspects for um, uh, Dark Ages Europe for the in-depth uh, look at uh, feudalism. Uh, so I don't think it goes over that well by itself, but I think it um, the resources it points out will uh, round out those edges, so to speak. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, when you, you had a comment here, too, uh, it was deep. It was back there we talked about this book advances the offense. Can you talk on that a little bit more? Uh, advances the offense. Yeah, this whole book, um, it like we've talked about, it, it talks about, uh, well, the spoils of war, how to acquire them. This is all about uh, taking things, taking what other people have. That's that's the idea of it. This is, um, this whole book is just focused on uh, waging a war from the side of the attacker. Um, so for offensive right campaigns where you are going to conquer uh that is um that is what this book is really uh targeted at hmm. in my opinion i tend to agree 
I tend to agree. It's 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 going to war, right? And it does it does uphold that. Um, there is little to how one might build, but because when they mention it, it's just to how you take it down as well. So yeah, I mm-hmm. think that I think they hit there. Um, it says for the storytellers, it's a feudal setting and story ideas. Um, for me, just to go first here to give you a break, I felt that was a little nebulous. It gives you it gives you a feudal setting, but it's also called Dark Ages. It gives you some story ideas, but it doesn't necessarily force you down that path, right? So that's the that's the thing I would say. It's I don't know. I, I guess I guess I would want more, but it doesn't necessarily have to do it because the pacing would slow down dramatically uh, if they included that in. So I tell you what, I'm going to break even on that. Uh, what do you think? I, I don't. Uh, feel as though this is a great uh, idea for storyteller ideas. The final chapter does give you several scenarios, and I think there are nuggets of gold in all four of those stories, but each story is only like a page and a half, right? <laughs> or maybe three pages at most. Uh, so those are those are great story hooks, in my opinion. But if you're a storyteller who is looking for more as a tale already written for a, a campaign idea, um uh this is this is not gonna happen for you um i'll tell you i'm not a storyteller that looks for a lot of detail i mostly just look for story hooks anyway so for me that's okay um but i don't think that is um i think it's like you said it's more of a nebulous uh storyteller resource all right and then finally it says uh you know use the book for the expansive and alternative rules to mass combat first is the one offered in the dark ages uh, storyteller companion now I really feel it added to just explain that a little bit. Um, it used to be something where you're rolling initiative for an army and here's your soldiers, here's mine. We roll dice to determine who loses what and then UST scenarios. Mm-hmm. This adds more options. Like, well, what if they have Balefire? What if they have uh, uh, werewolves? So, you know what I mean? And uh, different powers, different types of Greek fire. You know, that's all right. That's cool that's in there that will alter the face of combat, what you're doing for sure. Um, is that something you feel this book hammered home? As, as In other words, when it says how to use this book, yes, it's in there. They have that. They said it's in there. We know it's in there. What I'm asking is, in terms of how you would use this book, would you need that section at all? It's not a necessity, but I will say it's a good, nice to have. I'm a storyteller that likes uh, having having toolkits, basically. Um there's there's probably no scenario I would run where I would use every single option provided, but I can see there being points along the way if I was playing a, a campaign that really called for this, or running one rather, where I would use bits and pieces of what's provided. Um, for, for a couple of reasons. Some of these do seem to uh, speed things up, and uh, another part because um, if we're if we're playing a campaign where it's it's war, war is you know by its nature. Uh, unpredictable so using some of these to um really uh sideswipe uh in in tactical situations uh, i think that's a good use i think that's a i think that's a a valid and fun uh addition so to kind of summarize that um none of it's strictly necessary you don't need this uh to to run a campaign right but that's why it's a supplement uh, this is a good, uh, in addition to, however, <laughs> I'm going to agree. I'm, I'm going to say that this book, I think for what it said on how to use it is a good book. Uh, definitely paints that difficult, uh, 
how do I run a battle? How do I include everything we talked about here in this podcast in a concise book I could read and know how to do it? When you consider that it is supposed to be a companion piece uh, to the Rite of Princes, it begins to make sense. Mm-hmm. And if you're a storyteller of any Dark Ages genre, I'd even I'd, I'd absolutely say you need these two books, right? I know before on knowing just about Rite of Princes, I was like, eh, I don't know if I'd get it. And we were, and we were waiting for this book to see what that's about. With them both, yes, uh, would be my take. Because there are a lot of people who don't have the time or want to dive into the internet, research forever at some college, uh, JSTOR, or look up articles or whatnot. And not all of us have that history degree. And so the genre is hard to envision sometimes in the picture. And this does a good job by giving you targeted things to look up and guide you through, even other World of Darkness books at parts that are probably on your shelf. So I think it encourages your library to get a usage out of it. I think it helps you as a research tool. And uh, and I agree. What about you? Um, this is, I think part of my perception was just reading this by itself. Uh, definitely with the, well, like, like you just said, right? This is a companion to a previous book. This reading it by itself, you're only getting half the picture. Uh, having this with... Um, with Rite of Princes and some of the other books uh, it mentions, right, like Europe and uh, Ashen Ashen Knight, I think this uh, this would make like a, an invaluable resource for a for a storyteller running a Dark Ages campaign, even if it's not uh, vampire specific. Well, all right. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, that pretty much uh, that pretty much covers it for me. All right, everyone. I want to thank you for uh, tuning in and hearing us uh, kind of go through Spoils of War here. I know this is the restart up of 25 years uh, Vampire the Masquerade podcast, but at the same time, the goal was to get it out to you quickly, as painless as we could. And I definitely hope we hit that with making some adjustments you, the community, asked for. In addition to, we're trying something new. We were asked to give shout-outs at the end. A lot of people kind of may not listen to the entire beginning. Most of well, we were told by about four different people that uh, it gets to the end, and it's harmless for us to put it here. So I want to try it. Uh, so our recent patrons I want to add on here, and some that we just, you know, things happen as we are changing, we missed. I want to give a shout-out to Jorg99, George Dolby, Preston Wall, Jared West, Bix the Third, am I reading that right? I think I am. Dennis Higgins, Alexander Meza, Vizic, Kid One, and Paul Henderson. Thank you guys for agreeing to go with us and staying with us, some of you. And uh, that's all that we have. I will tell you, obviously all links are posted. We're going to keep kicking media out to you. Let us know how to get a hold of us. And uh, just remember, every, uh, well, two twice a month now, we're meeting up for these uh, town hall meetings, we're called, which is a chance for all of you to come out, jump on Discord, talk to us about ideas that you would like to see or hear, stuff you want to digest and stuff you want to listen to. Not just necessarily reviews, other projects as well. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we hope to see you next time. Or is that listen next time? Is there a... Yeah, I mean, you would have to say listen, I suppose. <laughs> right? I was... Yeah, you would. Boy, let's... Uh... <laughs> Apparently, I need memory something. Everybody have a nice night. Thank you, yeah. Brad Trout. Please take care, everyone.
Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know at Twitter at 25 Years of VTM, email at info at 25 Years VTM.com, Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash 25 Years VTM, at our website at www.25yearsvtm.com. And if you'd like to support us, thank you in advance, and we can be found at patreon.com forward slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening.